I'm going to give you time to get to these passages today. And if you don't have a Bible, there's one down here, I think, for you. Maybe not. The first passage is 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 5. Second passage, Matthew 26, 51 to 53. Third, Romans 8, 38 to 9. The squeeze is still on. We're kind of backing into Romans eight thirty six. We may end Romans, the exposition of it anyways, which is by no means our being through with it. Backing into the agona, the arena of contention. As Vicky was singing, I thought about the patience of the Lord and that what Peter wrote in 2 Peter 3.15, Paul, in all of his epistles, writes of these things, summed up are these things. These things are summed up in this. The patience of the Lord is salvation. And because the patience of the Lord, this is my exposition on that, Because the patience of the Lord is unlimited, then the salvation is universal. That's a little doctrinal rationale in case I lose you in the first three minutes. I'm connecting these things together. There's a way that we like to go, and then there's God's way. And I'm learning very gradually, like a child learns from his father, that in studying There is a way I'd like to take. And then there's the way the Lord shows. And I'm learning how to always take that second way. And that's what I'm doing today. That's why these passages, seemingly unusual, are going to fit into the plan today. So while you're still acclimating yourself to those passages, if you don't have a Bible, write them down, read them, because I think you'll see a connection here, grasp a connection that only the Holy Spirit will make fully apparent to you. And before we get started, there's, I mentioned Wednesday, I hinted that there may be some famous Christian people stopping by the next few months in little old Tetelestai, New Ken. Among them is an entourage from our DVD group, I fooled you, didn't I? Unknown but well-known. Unknown, perhaps, to human halls of fame, but known very well in heaven. Our entourage from Madison, Mississippi, our DVD group, represented then by them. And we're looking very much forward. They'll be here, I believe, in early July, just in time to celebrate our Declaration of Independence. Also... It has come that time of year when Pam and I delight to take our grandsons somewhere for a midweek, just a midweek trip. This time it's not going to be spiritual. It will be at night in devotionals, etc. But I believe we're going to go to Gettysburg and do some touring, hiking, fishing, boxing. You know, I'm going to teach them a few moves. And in my absence, the helper of your joy will be Pastor Brian Messick. Where is he? He's, he's teaching. You can't find him any times. He's hard to find. But Brian shares with me the conviction in 2 Corinthians ten seventeen and 18 that it is not the man who approves himself that's approved, but he whom the Lord approves. And the reason that we ordained Brian as the same reason why we ordained any of our ordained ministers is because we have seen in them not our approval, but the Lord's. So I hope you'll not only surround him with prayer as he comes to speak. Every time a man speaks in this pulpit, it is a historical occasion and extremely important in the eyes of God. So pray that he, and I ask for prayers for myself, And all who speak the gospel, that we may make it known as we ought to, the mystery of the gospel, 
as even today we'll be making known. So gather together and have your joy helped by a qualified helper of your joy, 2 Corinthians one twenty four. And I'll see you again next, one, next Sunday, of course. 1 Corinthians, make that 1 Kings. I didn't finish studying till 9.20, so forgive me as I stammer through here, but the Lord will take over. 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 5. At Gibeon, the Lord, that's Yahweh, appeared to Solomon in a dream at night. God said, ask, what should I give you? In our modern idiom, this will be, I'll give you anything you want, just ask. And Solomon replied, you have shown great and faithful love to your servant, my father, David, because he walked before you in faithfulness, righteousness, and integrity. You have continued this great and faithful love for him by giving him a son to sit on his throne as it is today. Lord, my God, you have now made your servant king in my father David's place. Yet I am just a youth with no experience in leadership. Your servant is among your people you have chosen, a people too numerous to be numbered or counted. So give your servant an obedient heart to judge your people and to discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? Now it pleased the Lord that Solomon had requested this. So God said to him, and this is what I want to emphasize, because you have requested this, And did not ask for long life or riches for yourself or the death of your enemies. But you have asked discernment for yourself to understand justice. I will therefore do what you have asked. I will give you a wise and understanding heart so that there has never been anyone like you before and never will be again. In addition, verse 13, I will give you what you did not ask for. I will give you what you did not ask for. Sounds like seek first the kingdom and all these things will be added. But... I will give you what you did not ask for, both riches and honor, so that no man in any kingdom will be your equal during your entire life. Now, consider that. I will give you what you did not ask for. He asked, and I ask today, in your presence, I ask the Lord for an understanding heart to understand justice. And by that I mean the just and mysterious law of the cross. And I hope you'll echo that request for your own selves because God will grant it. He's present here as he was in the dream to Solomon. Ask what I will give you. Matthew 26. The scene is the Garden of the Gethsemane. The occasion, the temple police and the slaves of the high priest come out to arrest Jesus Christ. A certain unnamed man tries to step in and prevent the arrest, and he's named later. We know his name. 2651, at that moment, one of those with Jesus reached out his hand and drew his sword. He struck the high priest's slave and cut off his ear. Then Jesus told him, put your sword back in place because all who take up a sword will perish by a sword. And this is where I want to emphasize. Or do you think that I cannot call on my father 
And he will provide me at once with more than 12 legions of angels. But then verse 54. How then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? If I asked the father for 12 legions of angels, he'd give them to me. So I don't need your petty little sword. Put it back in your scabbard. But if I asked him for that. Then the scriptures would not be fulfilled that say that it must happen this way. This way. This way is the way of the cross. Ought not Christ to have suffered. And to enter his glory. The way of the cross by which God would defeat evil, not by retaliation or by retribution, but by transforming it into a supreme good. This is going to figure prominently in our next increment of doctrine, which will follow upon the exposition of Romans. By allowing himself to be taken by the temple police to the powers that be, the institutional power of Rome, the institutional power of the high priests in Jerusalem, the collusion between political and religious power at that time. By allowing himself to be taken by the temple police to the powers that be, Jesus was being obedient to his father's salvific will, for it was his father's will that all Be saved and come to the knowledge only had by insight, the knowledge of the truth embodied in Jesus. The one who took out his sword to defend Jesus was actually standing in the way of that will, that salvific will of God. The things that we do in our bravado, our human pumped-up courage, our desire for vengeance to be seen on those whom we think deserve it. It is remarkable remarkable to me that Jesus said at that moment, right at that moment, that he could ask the Father. You know why? The Father was always present with Jesus and said, ask what you will. Always. You always hear me, Father. He could ask the Father to provide him with 12 legions of angels. That kind of puts in perspective Peter's little sword. And it was Peter. His name was not mentioned because Peter was still in danger when Matthew was originally written and distributed. So the one who took out his sword to defend Jesus was actually standing in the way of the cross. So Peter didn't learn much at Caesarea Philippi when Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. In other words, at that moment, He could ask the Father to provide him with 72,000 armed-to-the-teeth angels. If he had wanted to be delivered from the cross. But instead, he chose to be delivered to it. Now, I relate this to the notable episode in King Solomon's life because... Solomon was given not only what he asked for, but what he did not ask for. King Jesus, for he is the king of kings, was also given what he did not ask for because of his obedience to the death of the cross. What did he not ask for? Legions of angels. What he did not ask the father 
for. He was given because of his obedience to the extent of death by crucifixion. What he did not ask his father for was 12 legions of angels. And what God gave him in his resurrection was the headship over all the angels, over all principalities and powers. Reconciled to God. Reconciled to God, I said. Principalities and powers. Angels fallen. Reconciled to God by the peace that was made by the blood of Christ's cross. Don't mistake that which is absolutely spectacular with that which is bizarre. For 1 Peter 3.22 says this, Now that he has gone into heaven, he is at God's right hand, With angels, principalities, authorities, and powers subjected to him. Peter, the one who drew the sword and cut off the ear of Malchus, the high priest's servant, wrote that. Peter wrote that with his sword back in his scabbard. He's at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers subjected to him. Again, Ephesians 1, 20 to 21 says, God demonstrated such power in Christ that he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right side in heaven, far above every ruler, authority, power, dominion, or any other title given not only in this age, but in the one to come. And still again, Colossians 2.10 says, God has filled you up with Christ, who is the head over every ruler and authority. Now, this is how, this is what amazes me. The, the Spirit's direction tells me to go this way. I didn't want to go that way. I have plans for Romans 8. But do you see how this, you just go this way, and I went, oh, I see. This, how does this relate now to Romans chapter 8? I relate this to Romans chapter 8 by saying that no ruler, authority, power, dominion, or any other title given not only in this age but in the one to come is able to separate you From the love of God in Christ Jesus. Because through this way that Jesus took, he calls it this way. The scripture said it must happen this way. Christ and him crucified. The just and mysterious, the divinely wise and the divinely good. Way of the cross. God has given Jesus headship over all these powers. And moreover. All these powers. And all these angels. Are part of the reconciliation. Of all things. All beings. In the heavens and on earth. That was effected. By the way that Jesus took. And no other way. This more than superior power to all power. This more than superior power to all power. Would not have been so extraordinarily exerted. Had Jesus not gone the way of the cross. You know where this is going don't you. We're told to go the same way. But not today. We are asked today, but I'm not going to teach on it today. This more than superior power, which elevated Jesus above every other name, would not have been so extraordinarily exerted had Jesus not gone the way of the cross, the way that God willed in his love, which wills the absolute good for all that God loves. 
all whom God loves. Now, I'm going to cite a passage. George Caird, C-A-I-R-D, C-A-I-R-D, George Caird, did a series of lectures in 1954, and they have been compiled in a book by Whip and Stock Publishers. That's who Robin Perry works for. And it's entitled Principalities and Powers, a study in the theology of Paul. It was compiled in a book called Principalities and Powers. And I want you to see this because this fits immediately into a connection with what I've said already. It's lengthy, but it's well worth it. He writes, The idea of sinister world powers and their subjugation by Christ is built into the very fabric of Paul's thought. And some mention of them is found in every epistle except Philemon. There is Satan, who is constantly frustrating Paul's missionary work. 1 Thessalonians 2.18, 2 Corinthians 12.7 and following. There is the mystery of lawlessness. He has the Greek here, to mysterion, mysterion tes anomia, which Paul at one time believed to be on the point of open rebellion against God. 2 Thessalonians 2.7. There are the elemental spirits of the world. That's ta stoikeia to kosmu, of which both Jew and Gentile were held in bondage and which appear to have the close links with the law, that's the Torah, on the one hand, and with astrology on the other. Galatians 4.3, Colossians 2.8, and 2.20. There is the God of this age, he says, in 2 Corinthians 4.3 and 4. Ha theos tu eonos tu tu, which is the God of this age who has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they may not behold the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. There is the ruler of the authority of the air, ho archon tes exousia to eros, who is also described as the spirit now at work among the sons of disobedience, Ephesians 2.2. There are the rulers of this age, Greek tone, archonton tu eunas tutu, who crucified the Lord of glory and thereby compassed their own downfall, 1 Corinthians 2.6 and following. There are principalities and authorities, tas archas kai tas exousias, Greek over which Christ celebrated his triumph on the cross, Colossians 2.15. In spite of this defeat, the world rulers of this darkness, tus kosmokratoros, tu skutos, skotos tutu, or the prince, the rulers of this darkness, are still operative. Beverly Gaventa said they've been defeated, but they haven't left the field. Good point. And the Christian must wrestle with them, Ephesians 6.12. They still hold the whole creation in bondage to futility, Romans 8.20, Romans 8.38 and following. But the day must come when every principality and every authority and power, pasan arcane, kai pasan exousian, kai dunamen, will yield to Christ since he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty four. But this, when you get this in writing, it'll be all in bold, because this is what I wanted to emphasize today. This, however, is not Paul's last word concerning the destiny of the powers, for he came to believe that they were created beings, created in and for Christ, whether thrones or lordships or principalities or authorities, Colossians 1.16 and 2.10, and that it was God's purpose that they should be reconciled to him by the blood of the cross, Colossians 1.20. 
that angelic as well as human tongues should confess Jesus as Lord. That to the principalities and authorities in the heavenly places, there might now be made known through the church the manifold wisdom of God. Ephesians 3.10. Now that lengthy quote is in the introduction. That's just the introduction of his book. In a footnote, now follow this because they're going to bring you into our exposition, Romans 8, 38, 39, this way. In a footnote, Cared, commenting on Philippians 2.11, where it says that every tongue of beings in the heavens, the Greek word is epuranion, epuranion, in the heavens, will acknowledge Jesus as Lord. He noted this in this little footnote. That's why I read the footnotes. He said, many of the older commentaries on this verse, Philippians 2.11, leave us with the impression that epuranion, I'll write it up here for you because it's a key to this understanding. Epuranion is E-P-O-U-R-A-N-I. O, omega O, N. Epuranion. Looks like this if you put it in English. Unsels. E-P-O-U-R-A-N-I-O-N. Long O. He says, many of the older commentaries leave us with the impression that epuranion, or in the heavens, refers, to un, refers only to unfallen angels. But there are two reasons for rejecting this interpretation. Elsewhere, and he cites both Ephesians 2.2 and 6.12, along with the Slavonic translation of Enoch, which, of course, is an extra-biblical book, but quoted in Jude, of course, Jude 14, Enoch 29.5, and the note that Charles gives, who is the Translator of this, so it mostly Ephesians 2, 2, and 6, 12. The heavens are represented as the abode of the spiritual forces of wickedness. And in the present passage, 2, 11 of Philippians, Paul declares that Christ underwent the humiliation of the cross and the subsequent exaltation in order to bring these heavenly beings along with those under the earth into the subjection of faith. Now, that's amazing to me. And I first had these inklings reading Colossians 1.20 and Colossians 2.10. And I was warned, and rightly so, warned. Be careful about becoming bizarre. Well, I've been careful for many years to not become bizarre. But here I am. After 15 or 20 years after that, realizing that those inklings were spiritually intuited. Many of you have had the intuition of the things you're learning now before you learn them directly. You've had that intuition. You've had that inkling. And you can be delighted to know that that inkling was the ignition of wonder by the Holy Spirit. Now, in this same short but loaded little book, it's about this thick, it's about less than 100 pages, Cared shows that principalities and powers, Cared, incidentally, was one of the mentors of N.T. Wright, as well as some other preachers. He shows that principalities and powers includes the angelic guardians of the pagan state, known as the Elohim, in Psalm 82.6. Does not the scripture say, you are Elohim? little gods and they include also angelic guardians of the Torah that's one of the most controversial things Paul said about the the law is that the guardians of the law were fallen angels the suggestion is very provocative but I won't get bizarre both groups angelic guardians of the pagan state or pagan nations 
and angelic guardians of the Torah, both groups of which underwent corruption and became enemies of God. Now, Paul makes it very clear that neither those powers or principalities, including fallen angels, have the power to separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus or anyone else. More than that, however, because of the way that God ordained and this way that Jesus took, which the scriptures said was the way that he ought to take, all of these principalities and powers, as well as all of the human puppets of these evil rulers, are to be reconciled by the peace that was made by the blood of the cross of the beloved Son of God in whom we were graciously included says Ephesians 1.6. On top of all this in Romans, no, let's make that revelation. It was a, a French writer named Jacques Ellul, E-L-L-U-L. In the mid-70s, when I was in Lenox, Massachusetts, in Bible college, we had little cell groups that broke off, and we discussed books, and ours was a philosophical cell group. I forget what class we were in. We were assigned to do this, but we read Jacques Ellul, who was a French lawyer and then a French philosopher and then a theologian. He didn't claim to be a theologian, but he was a better one than almost anyone I've ever read. Jacques Ellul, we read his book, still recommended, called The Meaning of the City. I didn't realize back then, and I would have been kicked out of college if I did, that Jacques Ellul had a history in which he came to a clear comprehensive and fully persuaded universal salvation stance. He saw the universal saving significance of Jesus Christ. And he found it most clearly in a study which he called Apocalypse, which he expounded the book of Revelation. A lot of that going around today. In fact, he even saw in Revelation 14, the people being tormented in the presence of the Lamb said, How can it be hell if the presence of the lamb is there? And, of course, it relates to the fire that we will all experience. It will burn away our works, and that is in the presence of the lamb, in the presence of God. And he saw that, well, he saw that hell can't be if God is. If God is, hell can't be. If God isn't, then the hell with it, with everything. But he saw that in certain passages that people like to use for the opposite rationale. He saw this, and he became more and more convinced. I'm going to end today's message with a quote, because throughout Revelation and Romans, I've been doing what I think the Holy Spirit wants, and that's collaboration with other theologians, ancient, all the way back to the patristics, origin, and the others all the way up to Ariagena in the ninth century, Middle, and I'm reading a lot of 18th, 19th century universalists who had their times of controversy. And I'm going to quote Elul. I am remarkably reminded that his history of coming to this insight is almost exactly on the same track as mine was. And I see that in a lot of other writers. But they they don't get publicized for that final insight. People like to look at their early stuff their sociological stuff, their political stuff, but they don't like to get to what, where they came to. So, Revelation 5.13, speaking of Revelation, John wrote this. Paul saw the end of where all this is going, the end that he had in mind for the way that Jesus took, which is God's infinite goodness being communicated to all of his creation in all of its times, God being all in all. Paul saw it in 1 Corinthians 15, 28. John heard it in Revelation 5, 13. He heard the voice of all creation when God was all in all. He heard a voice from the future, and it looks like this, sounds like this. And I heard all of creation, that which is in heaven, and to Urano, almost like this, only a little different. Ento Urano, in heaven, Uranus, Uranu. I heard all of creation, that which is in heaven and on earth. Heaven is a power above. Earth 
And then below the earth, powers below. I'm persuaded that neither powers above nor powers below shall ever be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. See where this is going? Jesus didn't ask for the angels, but God gave him what he didn't ask for. And because he did, they're reconciled. And because they're reconciled, how in the world or out of the world or anywhere else could they ever separate you or all of creation for that matter and all of humanity and all of its times from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus? See, there's a rationale that goes deeper than the conventional, the traditional, the usual, the old-time commentary on Romans 8. So he said, I heard of all, I heard all creation. He heard it. That which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, on the sea and every being that is in them, heaven, earth, under the earth and sea. Say blessedness and honor, I guess even Aquaman. Imagine that. Blessedness and honor and glory and sovereignty to the enthroned one and to the lamb who took the way of being slaughtered. Led like a lamb to the slaughter. Isaiah 53, 7. How does that connect to where we're going? All we like sheep are led to the slaughter and killed all day long. We have associated, we've been associated, we've been identified with Jesus Christ. Now, some people get the message wrong. I was ordained along with about over the course of years, about 130 other pastors that I knew, when I broke from that affiliation, one wrote me and said, a friend always. But a lot of guys are out of work because they just lost the steam or the desire to preach anymore. And that's because God will never take you or cause you to be outside his love, but he might put you out of work if you don't get the right message. Or preach it. So a lot of guys that are out of work. Might get put back into the workforce. If they get this insight. A lot of them are fighting this message tooth and nail. Who are still working. In the pulpit. And some who are not. I just love those guys. All of them. You say, I bet you especially love the one that wrote the letter to you. No, love them all. Because whether they see it sooner or later, they're going to see it. And we're all going to have a lot of fellowship around it. I heard the voice of all creation, that which is in heaven. And on earth and under the earth, on the sea and every being that's in them, saying, blessed and honor, blessedness and honor and glory and sovereignty to the enthroned one, to the Lamb for the age that consists of endless ages. Amen. John heard the voice of the redeemed creation, of the reconciled creation, which includes that which is in heaven above and that which is on the earth and that which is under the earth below. These include then in Romans eight thirty nine, the powers above and the powers below. That Paul speaks of powers that now in the present state of things where the defeated team has not left the field. They seem to threaten to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. But not only do these powers have no power to do so. They will also be among the reconciled creation and will join in the universal chorus of praise to God, the ancient of days, and to the Son of Man, who is also the Lamb, his Son, in the universal return of all things to God, the Creator, Romans eleven thirty six. This is the day of eternity that Peter called it in his last words in Second Peter three eighteen. In which God will be all in all. In 1 Corinthians 15.28. The one who loved us and gave himself for us. Has so conquered. That he has brought about 
not the destruction, but the reconciliation of all things. A conqueror conquers and destroys. More than a conqueror reconciles his enemies to himself and transforms them to the supreme good. So we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. You getting the point? Super conqueror. The super conqueror conquers through the way of the cross. Conquerors, like Alexander the Great all the way up to Adolf Hitler, conquer by destruction. The Roman Empire, pictured as a nondescript beast of iron and clay, trouncing everything under its feet. Conquerors. They destroy their enemies. They destroy the innocent with the guilty. They destroy, destroy destroy Jesus is more than a conqueror because he reconciled he became man and I like what Lonergan said so that God could communicate in an orderly way his friendship to his enemies well doesn't it say that while we were yet enemies he reconciled us to himself does it not say that in Romans 5:10? everything in the Bible has to be illuminated in that light Or you'll misunderstand the Bible. That's why Jesus opened the minds of his disciples to understand the scriptures. That they would all speak of Christ taking this way to reconcile all things. And so Ephesians 1.10, Colossians 1.20 of course become phenomenal key verses. The one who loved us and gave himself for us has so conquered that he brought about not the destruction, but the reconciliation of all things, including his enemies in the heavens and on earth. We have yet to see this with our eyes, but every eye will see this. In its manifestation at the end of history, but both John, whom we studied for a year or two, and Paul, whom we're studying now for a while, saw and heard this redeemed and reconciled new creation of all things. In the meantime, please notice my intonation. In the meantime, before that manifestation, in the meantime, God not only prevents anything within the sphere of created reality to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Neither does he allow evil of any kind, which is not a part of his creation, like death, to be able to separate us from the love of Christ. The idea in Romans, let's just read Romans 8, 38 and 39 first before we go any further. For I have been persuaded Now, the passive voice here indicates that Paul was persuaded by someone else. And in Romans 14, 14, we learn that that someone else is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. It it leads to what Nathaniel Brandon, who was a student of the objectivism of the atheist Ayn Rand, whom a lot of people admire because number one is self, But Nathaniel Brandon called it cognitive invincibility. It's a pretty good term because it means that nothing can beat your persuasion down. Nothing can change your persuasion. Once you're persuaded by the Lord Jesus Christ, you never go back. I have been persuaded. Add that to that if you want in parentheses by the Lord Jesus himself, Romans 14, 14, that neither death nor life nor angels nor demons nor things in the present or things about to be nor powers above or powers below, nor any other institution. Please notice that the word catesis is used there, but he uses it in the sense that Peter uses it in 1 Peter 2.13. It is speaking of an institution of man created and incorporated, and that includes the Roman Empire. Paul writes this just before the fire of Rome in which there's a terrific persecution of the saints in Rome. So he's saying in advance, no created thing, catissus, or human institution like Rome and its governors whom God sends to punish will be able to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So far in the United States of America, we have been protected from institutional persecution like that 
But that protection is almost completely worn down to nothing. Some of us will die because of that. Some of us will know prison time because of that. Some of us will be persecuted because of that. But you better be sure that no power or institution incorporated and consisting of men under the power of these powers will ever be able to separate you from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. But don't get the idea that we're insulated from the agona. Don't get the idea that God insulates us. He who didn't spare his son from the cross does not insulate us from the way of the cross in this life. Where if we suffer with him, we will reign with him. And so I'm going to be leaving on a note, not of triumph, but of agona. If I finish this exposition next Sunday. I said, if. So the idea of life, how could life threaten to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus? Well, in that song that John Lennon sang to his son, Sean, he says, life is what happens to us when we're busy planning other things. In a way, that's right. We talk about what life has dished out to us. And you say, you met a person yesterday. They're 50, but they look 70. Why? Because... Life dished out some bad stuff to them. It happens. Like the car thief says on the commercial. It happens. You think you're shielded? You think you're insulated? Just because parents insulate their children to an extreme degree today, not preparing them for the agona and thus abusing them in a strange kind of way. God isn't like that kind of a parent. He doesn't spare his children. He doesn't insulate and protect them from every little consequence in life. It's been recently estimated that 70% of our population of young people could not cut it in a military confrontation. Because of they've been shielded. They've not been shielded from eating too much in video games. They've been shielded from life and what life dishes out and consequences that are dished out. I know of a father who protected his son from consequences. And this happened to be a time, Jared might tell you sometime, I, I dro- let the hammer drop on him and some consequences fell. And they fell hard. And he'll tell you today, he thanks God for it. A friend of his, his father bought him out of everything until they, it got worse and it got worse and it got worse until finally lives were ruined by this kid and his father bought him off, bought it off, bought it off. Finally, the kid killed his girlfriend. Eventually, you're not shielded from the consequences. Parents who shield their children from loving discipline, shield their children from realities in this life, Protect them from the word of God, which they're bored about or don't care about or don't want to have because it cuts into their self, me, I, me, me, mine time. That protection, you might call it love, but it's nothing but self-love with your kid in the way. That's a little preaching. Now I can go out of town. (laughs) I always do this before I go out of town. I could say I got an appointment right after. I don't, so you can beat me up in the hall. But anyways, nothing that can occur or happen to us in this life, our present lives in fragile human vessels, nothing that life dishes out is what he's talking about. Nothing that happens either at our physical death. What do you fear about physical death? Well, I fear that at my last last breath, I won't be able to breathe again and I'll be breathless throughout eternity. And I fear what happens after death. Why? Nothing that happens at death can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. In fact, to those whose life is Christ, death is a profit. It's a gain. It's a huge gain. 
It's like a balloon payment from God. Because you go into a state that's infinitely and immeasurably better than any state or any condition that can ever exist in this world, including on your honeymoon, to be with Christ. Put some verses like Romans 8, 38 and 39 in your hope chest. Because that's the real hope. Christ is the hyper conqueror. In fact, it says huper nikao. He's conquered death and did so not just for Christians, but for all beings. Death, once a feared enemy, is now a gain, a profit. P-R-O-F-I-T, Philippians 1.21. And not the loss of everything, including our soul. To the one whose living consists of Christ, death is a profit that comes to us at the end of this mortal life because by our physical death, we are brought into the immediate presence of Christ which is an inconceivably and immeasurably better condition than any that can be experienced here in these mortal bodies. The reason we can't imagine it is because if you could fully imagine it, people would be taking the shortcut there. And that's not God's will. So Romans 8, 38, I've been persuaded That neither death nor life nor angels nor demons nor things in the present nor things about to be nor powers above nor powers below nor any other institution. That's human institution like Rome, the Roman Empire, like the United States government gone rogue from God's principles, which could happen under the leadership of someone who's controlled by hate and power, lust. Catesis. K-T-I-S-I-S, human government, 1 Peter 2.13, where it says, Roman emperor and the governors whom he sends to punish those whom he and others consider to be wrongdoers. So placed as it is next to powers above and powers below, which are evidently supernatural, any other created institution like the human institution of the Roman empire or the human institution humanly constituted by men called the United States of America, you better make sure that your knee doesn't bow to the flag. You can salute it, but your knee better bow to the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Patriotism isn't Christianity. Christianity isn't patriotism. The United States of America isn't the kingdom of God. Neither is the church the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is coming. Any human institution can be corruptible. Even angels were corruptible. Any human institution can be corrupted. So, Paul speaks here to Roman saints in the heart of the Roman Empire, the beast. Himself. And I love, in closing, Jesus Christ is our Lord. And you don't make him that. You got to make Jesus Lord. Blasphemy. Blasphemy. You know why? Acts 2.36. God has made this crucified Jesus, both Lord and Messiah. I'll tell you what you can do. Let that sit for a minute. You can't make Jesus Lord, but you can make yourself the slave of your Lord. And he'll just call you his friend. The idea here is that neither supernatural powers above nor below nor humanly incorporated or empowered institutions have any power to separate believers or all of humanity and all of creation, for that matter, from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. 
What if, what if ministers go to prison because they don't judge alternative lifestyles, but they simply refuse to applaud them and they go to jail? It's already happened in this country recently. I'm not judging you, but don't make me applaud. I don't have to applaud anything about you. I applaud my Lord Jesus Christ. But there are laws in place that if you don't applaud and show hearty, heartfelt approval, then you will be up against the power of the institution called the government. Now, I'm just saying what's happening, what's going to happen. Get used to it. And I, with you, will respect the flag of the United States and respect those who gave their lives in service for the country and respect the lives that I'm going to look at with my grandchildren this week. Men who died that slaves could be free. Men who died that slaves could be free. Men who died viciously, horribly, by bayonets and cannon, by guns and knives and sabers, and blown apart to smithereens to free people. I will respect that. I will respect the men who went to Normandy. 19,000 kids killed. 18, 19 years old, most most of them, to liberate France from the oppression of Hitler. I'll always respect that. Always respect that. But there's a place in my heart that's infinitely higher than that, and that is my worshipful respect for my Lord Jesus Christ. I will never take a national holiday and make it the point of our service. It will always be the cross of my Lord Jesus Christ. And may God forbid, yes, I said it just like that, that I would glory in anything other than that and him. I just want you to get that clear. It's clear, I hope. Set apart the Lord Jesus Christ in your heart. Sanctify him. Then you'll be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks you of this crazy confidence you have. All right. So I want to close with something Mr. Elul, Monsieur Elul said. And it's in a wonderful book called All Shall Be Well. Lots of articles in there by lots of men and women about people who became universalists, the course that they took. It's fascinating. All Shall Be Well. It's edited by Robin Perry under the name Gregory MacDonald, which is his pseudonym. Gregory after Gregory Nisa, MacDonald after George MacDonald, the famous mentor of C.S. Lewis, whom C.S. Lewis didn't agree with because he was a universalist. So, Elul wrote this, and it was cited in All Shall Be Well in an article by Andrew Goddard, who studied his whole life very well. Elul lived from 1912 to 1994. Quote, this is a quote of Elul. As concerns sin, which is separation from God, and not just the individual act of wrongdoing that result from this, one might say that it is suppressed in Christ, since in him God and man are identified. There is no more separation. And reconciliation between God and man has been fully made. In terms of the perfect reconciliation made in Christ, all humanity is reconciled to God. God has reconciled all human beings to himself. It is God who does the reconciling of the world. Nor is anyone left out. The movement is always a unilateral one from God to man. The gulf between the two has been filled in. Separation no longer exists. And neither does the gulf between Abraham and Lazarus and the rich man exist. I'm adding that. That's my own addition. And so I'm going to close today's message, which might be the penultimate message of our exposition of Romans. I said exposition. We could go 150 more easily on themes 
that have popped up in Romans that I have not developed like I want to. But God's omniscience or God's omnipotence, both are invested in his love. His love has overcome all powers that can separate any of his creation and any of us from his love. Though as we're going to learn in 836, he does not shield us or insulate us. The one who didn't spare his son doesn't insulate his sons. It is God who does all this. And so I say this, and this is how I'm closing. I'm closing with Psalm 139, if you want to read it on your own sometime. There's no place to go. Because God's omnipresence is also invested in his love. And his omnipresence is just an expression of his love everywhere at all times. There's no place to go. To escape from God's love. Because God's love is everywhere. And encompasses all created reality. And it's even outside of all created reality. As well as inside and encompassing all of it. So I say this. If we were to escape created reality. We would only be in the sphere of uncreated reality. And that's God who is love. Psalm 139 then, and we'll, uh, I'm going to just say go in peace at this end of this, and don't forget Wednesday, it'll be an important time for our church. Psalm 139, 7 through 12. Where can I go to escape your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, Some people translate that hell. (laughs) You are there. If I live at the eastern horizon or settle at the western limits, even there your hand will lead me. Your right hand will hold on to me. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light around me will become night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night shines like the day. Darkness and light are alike to you, Yahweh. 